0: This is the Get Healthy 360 podcast where we discuss topics related to your physical, mental, financial, and spiritual health. Your host is Dr. Chris Ferguson board-certified in anesthesiology and pain management. This podcast is for informational purposes
1: only, and you should consult your primary health care provider before making any decisions related to your health. And here's your host, Dr. Chris Ferguson. Oh, one more
0: thing before we start. If you like this episode, please consider rating us five stars. We would really appreciate it. Thanks very much.
1: Today, we have a special guest, Dr. Marcia Pareto. She's a physical therapist, doctor of physical therapy, and she leads a team in Florida that specializes in treating Ellis danlos Syndrome. We will get into the details of what Ellis danlos Syndrome is throughout the podcast. It's one of those conditions that in medical school, you think you hear it's called a zebra or something that's like really rare, not very common. But I feel like when people look for the diagnosis, it's actually a lot more common than you would think. So Dr. Pareto, she was a one-time semi-professional figure skater who has had three hip surgeries. She has hypermobile, hyper-mobile syndrome and Ehlers-Danlos syndrome itself. Um, she's very familiar with the pain firsthand of having hypermobile joints, subluxations, joint, joint dislocations, and all sorts of other systemic issues brought on by hypermobile syndrome. It's also interesting that she's a semi-professional figure skater, because when I think of L. O. Stanley Syndrome, I also I often think of little kids in sports like gymnastics, um, figure skating like you she was in, um, or, or cheerleading, any of those sports that emphasize being really flexible, because these little kids are hyper-flexible, and it's just they're not diagnosed with this condition. And if they were treated early, they could avoid a lot of problems later on. So, Dr. Pareto, she's an active researcher in hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. She partners with um, many other universities. She's a clinical instructor at Nova Southeastern University in Florida, and. Florida International University for the entry-level Doctor of Physical Therapy program. She's an educator, recognized public speaker, both nationally and internationally, in the areas of orthopedics, neurosciences, genetic collagen disorders, and hypermobile spectrum disorders. She is also very involved in dietary theories um, and a holistic approach to wellness. She's also certified in lymphedema treatment. She holds a yoga therapy instructor certification and extensive training in lots of um, therapies that are fantastic for Ellis Danlos syndrome, we'll get into that. Into we'll get into that into the podcast. So, Doctor Brando, thank you so much for joining us today.
0: Well, oh, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure being here.
1: So, what is Ellis Danlos syndrome?
0: So, Ehlers Danlos syndromes, right? It's uh, there is a, it's there are fourteen different uh, connective tissue disorders that fall under that umbrella. And uh, 13 of them, we actually know uh, what is the genetic cause, and they are diagnosed with genetic testing. And the most, to what we seem to believe, that is the most common one, which is hypermobile Weller's yellow syndrome, uh, is the 14 type, which we don't uh, currently know what is the exact cause of, but they affect the connective tissue. And as we know, connective tissue is all over the body, in and out, and surrounding different types of systems digestive cardiovascular neurological Etc not only the muscles not only the tendons not only the ligaments like many will believe so um, uh, that's th- th- this condition will affect it's a multi-systemic uh, involvement whenever the patient presents with a with this diagnosis
1: And can you comment or expand on what I was discussing when I, I introduced you that often this diagnosis is missed. And it's often, I think, a lot more common than people think it is.
0: Yes, I, I agree with you. I think it's way more common. And uh, and because of that, many will go through many, many years of uh, uh, hit or miss in terms of other diagnoses and other uh, complaints that get mixed with other possible causes. Um So uh, because medical school and by medical school, I mean for physicians, for nurses, for physical therapists, and any any clinician, uh, we are taught very little, if anything, about uh, this type of connective tissue disorders. And because of that, we often miss understanding the complaints that these patients are presenting because they involve so many systems of the body that often these patients even are considered to be hypochondriacs because there is so much going on at the same time. And in other times, it's just too confusing. It just doesn't make sense in what we would think uh, rationally as we learn in school. But the reality is, uh, as it's been said in, in, uh, by, by, a, by another clinician, in the past, if it did, if you can connect the issues, think connective tissue because it's involving the entire body and all systems. that uh, could involve could many systems at once, even, at the same time.
1: As a, as a pain physician, I will say that I, I 100% agree with you. The training in medical school is really lacking. I think I remember Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome being discussed once, short, like quickly, in a connective tissue disorder, and that was pretty much it. And I think as far as the diagnosis, I agree with you, typically... As a physician, you have limited time. So if someone comes in and they you say you can discuss one issue today, you can't discuss like your high blood pressure, your diabetes, your mm-hmm. a thousand other issues. But Ellis Syndrome, I feel like is a hard diagnosis to make unless you really sit for a lengthy amount of time and um, put all the pieces together. So yes. you said that there are 14 different subtypes. Could you yes. give a expand on that?
0: So um, because there are different types of uh, uh, components of the connective tissue, right? There are different the, the different syndromes, the different type of a stains will be affecting different types of collagens within the making of that connective tissue. And depending on which collagens or which fibers, could be tenascin, could be any other fiber that co- make part of that connective tissue, that can actually cause different symptoms in that patient. So some patients will present with with more deformities or with way more connective tissue uh, 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 weakness. And by weakness, I mean a, a like a more skin fragility or more. Uh, symptoms. Some of them uh, might have more stretchy skin than others. It will all vary depending on the type of connective tissue component that is affected. So again, the hypermobile, we still don't understand. There are a couple of theories out there uh, that are coming out. There's a lot of research happening right now, and we're hoping to have more answers in the next coming
1: years. And then there's a specific vascular subtype that um, needs additional testing. If you want to discuss that,
0: yes. Yeah, so the vascular type is quite interesting because that's the first thing that. Uh, so there, when when a patient goes to see a clinician that is not understanding yet of the what connective tissue or what Ehlers Danlos is, the first thing they say, "Oh, you don't have that." That's the life-threatening situation. And they don't see the difference in between the illness and illness types, right? And then there will be the vascular type, obviously, which is affecting directly the the vascular system, which can make these patients more prone to vascular ruptures, uh, aneurysms, which bring them to a possibly shortened span of life. And because this takes so long to be diagnosed many times, that can only uh, many times be identified when unfortunately a fatal event or a near fatal event has happened. Uh, So that's the vascular type.
1: And what are some of the, and this is I think why it's hard to diagnose is because there's such a spectrum of disorders and spectrum of conditions and then there's a variable amount of symptoms someone can have. So two people with L-O's syndrome can have very different presentation Exactly. What are some of the common symptoms of people with ehlers Danlos syndrome?
0: So if we're gonna, so we're gonna look at um, ehlers Danlos syndromes is like, like I said, it's, it's a huge umbrella, right? And there are different types. So uh, the biggest mark of that is the hypermobility, the joint hypermobility. So what we look at mostly, and the most common type, which we should consider possibly be the hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos syndrome is going to be that patient that presents mostly with joint instability, joint subluxations, joint dislocations, um, generalized joint pain for long periods of time, pains that go from uh, the, the hopping pains, like I hear a lot in the office, pains that will be like, well, I woke up this morning with my knees really hurting, but All of a sudden, I'm getting here now, and my shoulders are really giving me a lot of trouble. Uh, That will be most of of the complaints that we hear, the instability, the lack of balance, the proprioceptive, or not knowing where they are in the space, or not knowing where their limb is in the space, and falling or twisting their ankles, or dislocating with a turn. Uh, Not everyone dislocates. Let's make clear that as well. Uh, Some of us will only sublux with certain positions. And I do have patients that do not even uh, present with this, uh, subluxations that will be that evident, but yet they do present, they have a history of being extremely hypermobile, which then it brings us to the historical hypermobility. As we age, we become stiffer, we become more arthritic, and we might not present with so much hypermobility as we did so we need to look at historically what goes on with that with that patient as well.
1: And what are your thoughts on, there's something called the BITON criteria as far as diagnosis. So if you want to explain what that is and what your thoughts on the reliability of that test.
0: So the BITON is, is a great uh, building block for us to actually expand. I feel like the criterias need to be revised and they will because we are noticing that trend and and the presentation of the patients to be more beyond the BITON criteria. But uh, they essentially are looking at the thumbs, pinky fingers, knees, elbows, and your ability to touch the ground with your hands flat uh, without bending your knees. Uh, that is just checking a specific joints. I have patients at the clinic that due to their uh, stiffness and the pain, and they're not even well into their age is just literally there is so much pain that they're unable to extend their arm fully or to bend forward as far to touch the floor doesn't mean they never did that but i think uh, it's a great ground uh, building block for us to expand but i think we need to consider other joints and it's very important to consider other joints in the initial evaluation because for example the hips are not looked into. And it's one of the areas that we see the most uh, being afflicted. Shoulders are another area that are mostly being afflicted by the joint hypermobility.
1: So other than that Brighton test that looks at the mobility of the joints, how else can Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome be diagnosed?
0: So, there is the 2017 criteria, right? So, we look at the biton. And then, once we look at that, we are also looking at skin quality. We're also looking at uh, dental crowding, the high palate. We're also looking at skin fragility, capillary fragility. Do they bruise easily? Do they have the little piezogenic papillas, which are little, uh, is the fat pad on the heels that pokes through the connective tissue? Uh, because there is a weakness. It's like the same principle for herniation or abdominal herniation, right? It That connective tissue, that uh, fat pad is going to herniate through the connective tissue. We're also looking at the presence of herniations, abdominal hernias, and uh, or pelvic floor um, um, issues in women that never had kids or that don't have, they're not overweight and, and all of a sudden they develop things like that. Um, Painted the joints for three or more joints for more than uh, three months. Uh, that's another marker. Uh, we we look at the, the There there are many things part of the criteria, but important is to follow the criteria. That's the best marker we have right now. As to get closer to a a cheat sheet or a map for proper diagnosis for those they're not familiar yet with looking at the other variances that this the syndrome can present.
1: And I think what makes it um, difficult to diagnose is there's such a spectrum of disorders. People often come in with coexisting conditions with the Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome. Do you want to discuss some of these coexisting conditions?
0: So oh, yes. this patients will present uh, with other symptoms. It's not only the hypermobile. And it might as well that there is that person that will be hypermobile but has no symptoms. Right, you're gonna sit with them, and they're coming to the office, and they're telling you, "I might have this. I don't know if I do. I really don't have pain, but look at my shoulders. Look at my knees. Look at what my hips do." And that is probably the the best moment for you to get started with a some sort of precautionary work to prevent uh, as much as possible uh, joint issues that can come up. They can be come up in the future. Uh, other comorbidities that we see commonly and but unfortunately by the time a lot of those patients get to us in the office is because there is already pain and other symptoms associated so we can see these patients presenting with dysautonomia or POTS we can see these patients present with mass activation syndrome and that can make it very cloudy and very difficult to come up with a diagnosis because you're seeing the joint hypermobility you're seeing the chronic pain but now you have the dysautonomia, which is the autonomic nervous system that is being, uh, that's acting up as well as the mast cell acting up and causing um, symptoms that are going to overlap and in many ways magnify how that patient is feeling now. And that's that's probably the hardest to clear, to figure out which one is feeding what.
1: Can you disc- discuss for the lay public and healthcare professionals, what is dysautonomia or POTS? So
0: the dysautonomia is uh, uh the, the postural postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome, right? It means that when that person comes standing up, they're gonna have their blood is gonna pull down to their feet because they don't have enough resistance or enough elasticity and recoil, and also the response of the autonomic nervous system to create that increased um, reaction that is going to help the blood to return to the heart and obviously even feed into the brain, right? for the oxygen. So when that person stands up, you're going to have the rush of blood down to the legs. You're going to start noticing their legs, are going purplish, their fingers. The, their forearms become purplish because we only think it's the legs, but we actually have a lot of blood pooling going down to the arms as well. um With that, your heart rate has to increase to compensate, to try to make up for that lack for that blood that's now not returning. That will cause the tachycardia part. So the orthostatic means your blood rushes down to your legs. The tachycardia part means your heart rate is going to increase to try to compensate. And then obviously, There will be a lot of symptoms that come with that, which could be dizziness, blackout vision, loss of balance, sensation that you're almost passing out. You do not pass out, but you almost pass out. You feel like you are. You're going to have sometimes to hold on to something, get the bearings again. Um, The brain fog that you're actually going to experience, even sitting down, doing homework, that blood is going to be pooling you might start experiencing that tachycardia out of nowhere, even though you're not standing, but you are upright. You can also start experiencing more uh, more, um, uh, brain fog and difficulty concentrating, which is a huge component as well.
1: And then how would you, um, can you expand on what mast cell activation disorder is? Because uh, it seems like it's a controversial diagnosis.
0: It is, and but because so it, the mast cells, what what it, it's our immune system, right? Our body is supposed to be protecting us from different things. Mast cells, their job is to help us protect the body. However, whenever you are actually in movement, whenever you are exercising, whenever you are in contact with uh, chemicals or viruses or even things that can be uh, like band-aids or anything that can cause a reaction that's that that can release certain chemicals that can be that are they have a function in your body however the mast cells when they are mast activation syndrome they actually will release in excess of what you actually needed and for no specific reason sometimes they're just firing away. And so we actually call it meth cells, meth cells gone haywire at the office because that's what they are doing. They're just firing and releasing all those chemicals. And that can cause a lot of problems in the body because it's going to be causing, for example, some patients have intolerance to exercise just because exercise releases histamine and that release of histamine in excess can cause a lot of down side effects. And cause that patient to actually have a negative reaction to exercise, which is essentially what's gonna get them better. So, in knowing and understanding when you're working with a patient with mass activation syndrome, a patient that has spots, and then a patient that has uh, uh, hypermobile arsenal syndrome or EBS. And which is what we call the trifecta, you need to understand how to manage and do all those exercises and activities and educate the patient in being in contact with the different things so they can actually have a better quality of life.
1: Okay, so mast cell activation disorder, is this a new diagnosis? Is it an old diagnosis? Because it seems mm. like that's not a common thing that people know about
0: it's not a new diagnosis it's definitely not common and it's definitely not looked up enough uh there there's also interesting things because we don't see many patients testing uh positive but yet having reactions so we don't understand where those fit in correctly yet
1: um can so are there specific genetic tests for ellis dano syndrome and how reliable are those tests
0: for the Ehlers-Danlos syndrome specifically, so if we are looking at the other thirteen subtypes that actually have a genetically marked a genetic marker now, those are done through genetics, obviously. Uh, but for the hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, is actually uh, uh, it's actually a clinical diagnosis. It's actually a physical examination, comparison with the criteria, looking at that individual for the presence of any other diagnosis that could coexist, and that's how the diagnosis is done. Obviously, if there are things that might be suggestive of possible uh, uh, other type of connective tissue disorder, that needs to be ruled out as well. And it's important that is if that patient presents with any signs that can uh, suggest the presence of something else. I do have patients with mixed connective tissue. I do have patients with classical Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. I have patients with vascular so that, that's the importance of ruling out or it, doing a genetic testing.
1: So can it be inherited and can you have, um, if you have it, do you think your family member should be tested?
0: So one of the criteria is definitely that you have immediate family member that will uh, present with uh, the hypermobile Alzheimer's syndrome. Uh, but and if it doesn't present, and it needs to be investigated. Um, usually, uh, we see this being more common in women, obviously. And we always see this that there is a family member. Like in my family, it, it tracks from my grandfather to my mother to myself, which I uh, nicely enough has have gifted to my daughter. So it 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 has a sequence. You can actually pinpoint that sequence.
1: And and then. This is public, it's on your website. So you're a specialist physical therapist. The ther- you're a physical therapist with a lot of training, specialized in ehlers Syndrome, and you have ehlers Syndrome. So can you comment on um, specific treatments, specifically medications for ehlers Syndrome?
0: So what do we see... So the treatment is, is essentially done based on the presentation of that patient. Obviously, patients that have dysautonomia, they might be on beta blockers. They might be on volume-expanding drugs. Patients with mast cell activation syndrome might be on chromaline, might be on different drugs that will assist with controlling the reactions. However, in general, the treatment is actually about exercising, about strengthening your body, about building... The tissue again with a very careful approach so you don't actually flare and cause more mycotrauma. You got to remember, we're looking at a tissue that is more delicate in nature because it is a felty fiber. So if you break, if, if you push through with the traditional PT or with the traditional weightlifting or with the traditional protocols, you might cause more problems to that person and even lead to maybe more joint instability or injuries that we could have prevented, which is the entire goal of the treatment for joint hypermobility and ehlers danlos syndrome. Also because POTS, Posture to Static Tachycardia Syndrome, responds really well to exercise um, by building that external strength that helps with blood flow return, that helps with conditioning the heart, That is also another important aspect. And then obviously bringing in the component that you need to understand how mast cell activation syndrome plays a role in exercise and understanding how much you can work with each patient because you might end up causing a mast cell flare, as they call, uh, because you overdid with their exercises. So that is also another important component to keep in mind when creating. So it's a puzzle, right? You have to see what that patient presents with. And then you have to start pulling the pieces of that puzzle that fit that case specifically. So we're working with the spectrum. You will have someone that's a higher level. You might have someone that is a dancer, someone that is a gymnast, someone that's used to have a higher level of activity. Usually the younger patients have a tendency, not all. I do have young patients, they're very, very physically limited and in a lot of pain but in general the younger patients are stronger they're still involved with physical activity they're still in a good place that we can build from but then as we get older and we experience more and more symptoms we become weaker as we pass our 30s we start even losing now muscle tissue and then that is going to be even more complicated it doesn't mean it doesn't happen Uh, I, I, I've been there on where I was, uh, disabled at a point because of the symptoms. And now I am actually extremely physically active and exercise five, six days a week, have the stamina, have the, the, the ability to do all that. So it's a, it builds, it took me 12 years to get what I am and you have to slowly build that. And each person has their own tolerance level, their own severity of symptoms. So all that needs to be taken into consideration.
1: Um, So I'm a pain physician. So I've seen some patients with Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome do really well with, um, sometimes something called the spinal cord stimulator because in Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome, you develop neuropathy, which means that Mm -hmm. the nerves are hyper hyper excitable. Um, Do you have any thoughts on that therapy?
0: So I have seen patients respond well. I agree with you. Some patients will do quite well. I uh, rather uh, believe that that is, and please you have to correct me on that if I am wrong, but I find that to work really much better to older patients, like if they are on beyond their 30s or 40s or even 50s versus the young population, um, because I believe that the younger patients do have a better uh, tissue turnaround, and we still have a better. We still can achieve better results. Um, but yes, I think the pain stimulator is essential for some of the cases that are not responding well to any other therapies. And we unfortunately have those that unfortunately do not respond as well. And then there, there is, like you said, there is the neuropathies that can be present. There is a, a nutcracker syndrome, which is a, uh, a, an issue with the arc uh, ligament uh, compressing. Um, the veins in the abdomen. And, and we also have chronic pelvic pain. Th- th- there is a lot of other diagnoses that can exist with it. And we need to know where we, where medication has a limit and where we have to enter with a pain stimulator or anything else. So I think there is a place for everything.
1: The thing that I think that I have to, I keep in mind when I work with the physical therapist who's been, we're seeing someone with L-Standler syndrome is um, there's also issues with wound healing when it comes yes. to surgery so uh, and i'll ask you to expand on this in a second but um, when speaking with an ophthalmology friend of mine who does say lasik surgery he he did notice that whenever he has an allos danlos syndrome patient um, sometimes they don't do well with lasik surgery because you have to cut the flap in the eye and then modify it and then yes it's a reattach so his thought was, you should really caution people with Ellis Danlos syndrome if they're thinking of LASIK surgery. Even for the surgery, I would do like with the spinal cord stimulator. I agree with you. Older patients tend to do better than younger patients. I would say the mainstay of therapy is physical therapy, especially with an experienced physical therapist. Um, I'd be, I would, I really recommend someone see someone who has a large background in Ellis Danlos syndrome. But if you want to comment on the surgical implications of having LSA syndrome.
0: Yeah, I, I see that a lot at the office. There's multiple patients uh, that we either receive right after surgery or we actually have to, I, I act in many ways sometimes as a, uh, a case coordination or care coordination for, for a lot of these patients. And because they get to me, they still don't have a team formed. So I will send them out Sometimes for surgical assessment, because um, hip and shoulder being like one of the major surgeries that I do see, uh, that I do refer out to. But yes, a classical patient, classical Alzheimer's syndrome is probably the one that I see having the most issues with healing, wound healing. The skin is just very, very delicate. But I do have uh, some hypermobile Alzheimer's patients where they went through the normal three week before stitch removal. And as soon as it was removed, the whole wound has opened. And, and it is possible that that happens. They do heal slowly. Even if it, they look to be healed, as soon as that skin got, they got in the pool because it's part of their protocol, where the skin got a little macerated and that the whole thing just opens up because it is a tissue that is more delicate. Uh, what I see a lot is also the separation of the scar where there is a myofascial defect where you go into the, the portal, if it is an arthroscopy or if it is um, any, any other type of, of surgery where you actually go through the scar and now you see the scar has been separated and, and, and opened up a little, it's that thin layer of paper that seems like to be connecting the two ends. And then you put your finger and you palpate and you notice that there is a, a superficial myofascia gap in there, and then you can actually deep into the muscle through that area because the myofascia has opened up. So that is a a delicate thing to be always looked at. These people don't respond well uh, sometimes to surgical uh, or traditional surgical healing times. They might need more time, or they might not even do quite well.
1: I have noticed that this. The patients that I've had have done better, but I've had a, a slightly modified approach where it's not the normal closure. It's this. It's a lot more sutures that are really close together, and not just one or two layers. It's multiple layers, so that those skin tissue layers are really well approximated um, with a lot more support than a typical patient. Yeah,
0: I have seen. I have seen that uh, with some the surgeons I work with. Our surgeons that are used to work with illness, illness patients now. And I think, and unfortunately, that's how a lot of us are learning is to trial and error. So we mm-hmm. see, oops, this, I have had this many patients and all of them seem to have this behavior of the scars. So let me throw in some more stitches. Another thing that I like to do is have them keep with the sterile strips a little longer than the what we would normally do when we remove a stitch, Right because we just want to really keep that skin approximation as much as possible to prevent that from opening.
1: And um, so you specialize in this, these <laughs> conditions. Um, how is your approach to physical therapy with these patients, say, different than the traditional physical therapy?
0: So to begin with, the evaluation or the initial visit is the two-hour long visit. And sometimes I even go over a little bit because there's just so much to learn from each one of them. The, I, I, I consider that the biggest part of a understanding your patient is understanding their medical history. And not only even the medical, but their history, right? Tell me how it was when you were growing up. Tell me how difficult it was for you to participate in activities with other children. Does your mom share anything with you? What do you remember? Um, how it has been in a school? When did you first? What What was the trigger? I'm very interested in what was the trigger. Um, usually, actually, in women, it's quite interesting because it seems to be related to when they first have their their period or around their first period. So that's when we see that they start developing more symptoms. So uh, what I see, uh, I'm very interested is on the trigger. What has caused, how did that start? We do have patients that have been triggered. And when you go back in history, you learn important things. There is a huge association of concussion and patients starting to ve- develop symptoms uh, car accidents and from there was the trigger where they start developing more symptoms so i haven't been noticing that by learning their history so and it's important to know did you have a concussion did you have a, a whiplash injury did you have a major fall when you were tumbling and, and you were a, a gymnast did you have falls what happened to you how many joint injuries have you had because they sometimes don't correlate all those things they just think oh yeah I was a limber kid I was uh uh, uh but I was all my, my joints were all over but it was great cuz I was a great gymnast and then all of a sudden the symptoms started to evolve and appear so it's important I do a 2 hour intake where we sit down just my intake itself prior to the, t- the the exam is a very very long and detailed questionnaire they need to go through I prepare for each case So I understand the patient that's coming in and sitting in front of me. We will look into all the physical complaints, but also the emotional, the digestive. You know, there's a whole psychological component at this point. They have gone back and forth with too many clinicians that unfortunately did not understand. And they unfortunately get frustrated, which I try to educate them like, we are all learning. This is a whole learning curve for all medical professionals and patients alike. But they are in pain and they have been frustrated. And uh, so we sit there and we have a long talk about all these things. I really want to learn what is happening, what systems are being affected, so I can find out if there is anyone that need, they need to be referred to to give me support on that care. It's important that they have the proper nutrition. It's important that we understand how the dysautonomia and how the or the POTS and the uh, EDS and the mast cell affect your digestive system. It's important to understand: Do you have any metabolic disorders that have not been ruled out that need to be sent back to genetics? Um, do we need to have a um, neurologist? because you're presenting with symptoms that are potentially neurological symptoms that that could be addressed and treated. So just there, it's a whole two hour at least. We go through a physical examination where we do a computerized assessment of movement. So at that assessment, we actually get to see how the body is moving in a space and we get to pinpoint what are the muscles that are actually not firing and firing correctly. Uh, we go through a palpation part of where we figure out where the myofascial restrictions are and what are the uh, points of pain, where are the restrictions that are presented, and how we're going to be addressing that. Because it's not only exercise, uh, strength is just one small component of it. But this is a whole person. This, this whole person needs to be addressed as a whole person, it's not a joint. And that's where, unfortunately, uh, because of the, the way the the system and the insurance system approaches. You have to choose a joint. You have to choose a body part. And it's hard when you have EDS. Being a patient myself, you tell me, pick a body part. My joke is that I circle the entire body. It's it's a part. It's a whole part of it. Because I can't separate my left shoulder from my right hip from my left knee because they're all equally bothering me and limiting my ability to function on my day-to-day. So once we put it all together, then we I draw the plan of care and I pull the components we're going to need for that.
1: I think you um, hit on some really important topics. I think you you got into, often with LLs down low syndrome, patients are very frustrated with their medical care. Exactly like you said, they'll go see a physician or they'll see a healthcare provider and they'll say pick a spot, but then they'll circle the entire body, which is somewhat and often very challenging to work with. This leads to a lot of frustration and often a lot of anger at the healthcare system, which then leads to Mm -hmm. a contentious relationship with people who are trying to help them, which then leads to a lot of animosity and that typically does not go well. Um, Do you have suggestions for people with Ellis danlos Syndrome on how to navigate the healthcare system?
0: So I think one thing that happens to us, and I, I will say that because I went through the whole process, being disabled, frustrated, trying to figure out my own diagnosis, right? And then trying to navigate, okay, who do I need? And I had the knowledge, and I still felt frustrated. I had the knowledge to who I should be looking for for each of my complaints, and I still felt frustrated because um, we just wanna feel better as patients, as humans. We're not made to have pain. We wanna get better. And, and unfortunately, the way the system works nowadays, we only have as clinicians, we only have so much time, we have the great will to try to help someone, but because these patients are coming so frustrated sometimes, and they want to share so much with us at once, to make a case at this point, which is not necessary, but sometimes they are in, in, because of many things that have happened in their lives, they now feel like they have to make a case and they already come in a defensive and we are humans. And we try, we, we, we then going to end up trying to defend ourselves because we're trying to help. So I think the biggest way that we get help from a medical professional is being open that that medical professional is doing their best they can with what they have on their hands at that moment. And that they are truly willing to help. However, they might not have the tools that they need to be able to help you. And not everyone is going to be at that point of being able to help us at all times. And that's when we just, you know, I, I believe that we should be grateful to everyone that comes into our lives that can give us one piece of information. Even if it is, I'm not the right person to help you. But at least we know that we can move on and look for someone else. If we go to that one profession and say, listen, I don't know how to help you, but I think I can send you to this other person. This is already a huge help. It's already pointing out the right path and the right, uh, uh, the right way to go. Um, I do believe, though, that as clinic- clinicians, that our job is to at least try to understand a little bit And we know that even if we know a lot about or we believe, I like to think I fail. I fail forward and maybe fail a little less than someone else, but I also fail. We are humans, we are learning and who knows in 10 years from now what we're gonna know about this diagnosis. But just being able to give one piece of information, even if it is guiding them to someone else, is already a, I think it's already a positive. So if we go open as patients, if we just go knowing that not everyone's going to be able to help us, but um, just not being on the defensive, it will probably have, we're going to probably receive more help and more assistance and more guidance than going in, in a defensive mode.
1: I think that's very good advice. You talked about Ellis Downer syndrome, the implications on your life and family, and typically it's women that are being diagnosed with Ellis Download Syndrome. What's that impact on your ability to, say, have children, and then if you have it, if you've passed it on to your children, what are your thoughts on that?
0: So it is a dominant characteristic, right? So it means that the likelihood that we give to our next, or to our child is, is really, really huge, right? Um I think the biggest thing uh, that we need. And, and, and by the way, I did say it's more. It seems to be more diagnosed in women than in men. I do have patients; they're males, but it's probably about ninety percent of my clinic female, and the other ten percent are going to be the male patients. We still don't quite get the understanding why that happens. It could be related to hormones which seems we have noticed progesterone and estrogen playing relaxing on pregnancy, having a huge role on joint hypermobility and joint hyperflexibility on the connective tissue in general, while testosterone makes the majority of men are very, very tighter and firmer and more muscle mass. So I think it might be that the route, the reasoning behind it's beyond my, my scope, but sounds like that could... Possibly be the reasoning behind why women are most com- most commonly diagnosed. Women are also more verbal and look more for care. I think that's part of as well. Women are going to seek for health care more often than than uh, a greater majority of men. Now, uh, passing on to your children. Um, unfortunately, I like I said, I, I gave it to my daughter. Uh, what I have noticed it seems like as it goes through the different generations, seems like the symptoms become a little louder and a little more intense as I see many parents or many moms and grandmas n- not having so many problems as the children that they are bringing into my office now. And again, this is very subjective. This is just an observation in my office. Could be just be the population I work with, but I have noticed that now there are complications in certain cases and have children. I had a lot of the complications during delivery, hence, I only had one child and I chose not to continue because it was a, um, a risk pregnancy. Um, I did develop a lot of the issues and I almost ended up passing on my delivery. That's how complex it was. Uh, But I have patients with four, five, six children that they've been told they were made to have babies, which I was told too, but I was like, I don't think I, I, I agree on that one, but they had easy labors. They deliver four, five, six kids. And obviously now they do have pelvic floor issues and things like that, but the delivery was flawless. It was great.
1: So are there what are the precautions someone can take or what are some of the things they can do um, in conjunction with a physical therapist, ideally, to help minimize the symptoms of Alzheimer's in your room?
0: So it's not only physical therapy, right? It is physical therapy is a small part. Physical therapy is where you address a major diagnosis or a major joint problem or a major weakness that needs to be addressed. But this is all about lifestyle. This is about how you eat. Uh, You have to avoid certain things that can be damaging to the tissue, that can cause tissue inflammation, that can cause uh, issues with your digestion. You have to maintain a physical activity level that will help you stay strong on your day-to-day because um, it's not just about getting the PT, then you got better. Then you got home and you go from the couch to your computer or to your school or to your job uh, position where you sit. Maybe you have a stand-up desk, you stand a little, but you're not maintaining your body healthy. It's important that you do keep a healthy nutrition, um, supplementation, act physical activity, that you have a good socialization, because the mental, the psychological aspect is huge. Meditation um, to, to help you with symptoms, because we do build a lot of anxiety. We don't know what is coming next, right? We don't know if we're going to, we are fine, and all of a sudden you're going to have a joint dislocation that can trigger a whole bunch of other symptoms. So, a healthy lifestyle is the key it's not just a one thing one one thing that you do that is going to help with EDS.
1: Are there specific? So could you be a bit more specific in what you should or should not eat?
0: Okay, so uh, what we look at is what I have noticed is that a lot of the patients have an intolerance or a sensitivity to gluten. You don't necessarily have necessarily have to have Crohn's disease, or you don't necessarily have to have any. Allergies where you need an Epipan because gluten is really bad for you, or or sugar is really bad for you, and you have this massive reaction. It could be that intolerance, where if you actually eat too much of that on repeated basis, is where you're gonna start building chronic joint pain and experience more muscle pain. So avoiding to an extent is really really important minimizing, just, you know, you don't have to have bread every day. Maybe you have it once a week. Maybe you have it twice a week, but you don't need a loaf of bread. You might choose a slice. Uh, quality of what you're putting in your body is very important. Not everything needs to be organic, but it needs to be healthy, minimally processed. So I usually tell my patients, minimize or eliminate gluten if you can. I I personally have, I don't have any gluten sensitivities or intolerance that flagged in any blood work um or genetic testing or anything for the sake but i every time i eat a pizza i know i had a pizza my body will talk to me because i'm gonna swell up i will have joint pain um it is marked next day is marked that i i know i had that pizza uh Dairy is is on the fence. It can cause inflammation, cannot cause inflammation. But what we look at is that some patients do respond in a negative way to dairy. They do develop bloating. They do because it's not only the lactose. It could be the protein in in, in it. It could be processing of that dairy, right? There is a lot of processing going on until that milk gets to your table. So that processing, what was present in it, that could be triggering you. So sugar that donuts, unfortunately, is sugar is inflammatory in nature as well as it is uh, gluten. Uh, it, it, simple sugars, the donuts, a candies, these are things that are going to exacerbate your digestive system. They are going to create more tissue inflammation. So, being able to spread that, being able to have it as a treat, and then going towards more of a Mediterranean diet. I'm a very firm believer of the Mediterranean diet. Of course, give or take, there are things that we all have more sensitivity to. Like I love broccoli, but broccoli and I don't agree very well. So I eat less of it. I also learned that broccoli, when I broil it, it re- I respond better than when I uh, do it steam. So learning those nuances that work best for your body, processing the least, those healthy foods, a diet that's rich in vegetables, in fruits, a diet that has less red meats and shellfishes just because those are more inflammatory in nature. A diet that has um um more of the natural aspects of the foods itself and not and, and, and even juicing but when I say juicing, I'm not talking about your glass of orange juice or your glass of apple juice with a ton of sugar. I'm talking about literally getting through a juicer, putting a couple different vegetables, making sure that you do get enough vegetables and anti-inflammatory or, or alkaline uh, uh, fruits and vegetables that will be a best choice for everyone. So that's, that's what I uh, usually educate my patients a lot on. And then obviously we go through the nuances of what each person needs more or less based on how their body reacts to 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 certain
1: foods and certain meals. So it sounds like you've come a really long way in your in your journey from being disabled to having a child, almost dying to having a child, to running a physical therapy place specializing in LOS Down syndrome, and you seem to have a very positive outlook. But I have seen a lot of L's download syndrome patients that are very angry and um, and justifiably so. In chronic pain yes. and they're frustrated with the system so can you comment on the mental heath- health aspect of ellis syndrome
0: oh boy if i can comment on that because i've been there and that's like uh, it, it's it's so easy to fall for it because we are in pain right we are hurting it's we are in pain no one understands a lot of people don't believe because we do get that line a lot but you don't look sick Well, at least that's going for me, right? (laughs) I don't look sick, but I'm falling apart. My body hurts. I don't have energy. I can't sleep at night to dance. I can't stay awake during the day. That's quite interesting. I can focus on my work. I can't carry a full conversation without forgetting what I am going to say next. And obviously, I'm going to be angry. You're in the right to be angry because your body is failing you. And... Uh, As patients, we go through a phase as well where we truly believe that the medical profession should be able to help us. They have the obligation to help us. And then we go to the different physicians or clinicians in general, right? And they can't understand why. And we just start getting angrier. And then we don't have the support of the family sometimes. I see this day in and day out in the clinic like my mom doesn't understand me my dad doesn't believe I need this they just think I should hit the gym and then there will be that clinician that is gonna look at that patient and say you just need to go to the gym and work out hard you're gonna get better it's like we wish that was it so uh, mental health uh, that, that was a, a that hit close home for me because I failed to maybe even the third surgery because I was in chronic pain for about five or six years after my last hip surgery. Um, and failing something in my case, particularly that I was a specialist on, cause that's what I did hips. I was, I rehab professional athletes with hip labral tears and surgeries of hip for, for, uh, Uh, firmacetabular impingement and labral tears and then all of a sudden I can't rehab myself talk about getting angry about it right like you fix everyone else so that took a huge toll now because no one in the family would pick up on that why I couldn't get better people start looking at me as, and I was told that you are milking the system I'm like oh yeah I'm so excited making 50% of my paycheck and being in a wheelchair there is nothing better than that. Um, so that took a toll on my mental health. Uh, you kind of go through, I think, the, the phases of griefing, right? If, why me? Uh, you get angry at it. You don't know what to do next. Um, I, I will tell you, you do need to... You, you, we do need the psychological support. And I went through a phase where I actually needed even medication to help me with the anxiety and the depression that I was going through during the process. Uh, there was the part of also the POTS because I, did, I didn't I did have severe POTS symptoms or mast cell symptoms until I got triggered by my surgeries. So then all of a sudden I had all that tachycardia that was being told that it was anxiety and no one could understand, but I would stand up, I would pass out and took a while to get even the POTS diagnosis. And so uh, there's so many things that we are treated or we are not treated correctly until we figure out what it is. And that takes a huge toll emotionally and psychologically. and takes a toll on the family too, because the family, for more than they're trying to help you, they don't know what to do. And then when someone comes to us and says, just try, you can do this. And we're like, you really think I'm not trying? And then we get even angrier. So having support a psychologist, having a support of a, um, a coach, uh, psychiatry, even if you need, it is so, so crucial and so important. Uh, I did work with three different psychologists at a point. Uh, I had two coaches um, that I had to work to get a different outlook of life, to understand that I had to focus mostly on the bigger and better things, and try not to put my focus so much on the pain and on the limitations I had, because at the end of the day, where focus goes, energy flows, right? So if you are focusing only on the pain, and it's hard not to, and I'm not saying it's easy, I can tell because it was horrible for me too, but trying to direct your focus on bigger and better things and just say, you know what, I know I'm in pain today, But I'm going to do this meditation technique I learned with my therapist. I'm going to do this breath work I learned with my other therapist. And then I'm going to go ahead and do my exercises. Because for more than I know, I'm going to hurt a little more after I finish. I know I'm building the tissue and I know I'm building the strength. And this eventually is going to build mental and physical resilience, which is what we need. And that's why it takes so long to rehab a patient with uh, Ehlers-Danlos or with uh, symptomatic hypermobility spectrum disorder, because it's just a lot of little pieces that contribute and create this massive uh, uh, reaction to our bodies.
1: So if someone has Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome, hypermobility spectrum disorder, who would you say they should have as part of their healthcare team? So we...
0: Every patient needs a good clinician that is doing the care coordination. And by care coordination, I mean that clinician that is going to tell them, okay, let me see uh, which physicians have you seen, which symptoms you're presenting, where do we need to send you next, what further testing we need, and what clinicians need to be in our corner permanently to continue to address whatever that issue is. That is a one. Then you have to find out. Okay, that patient with a that cervical problem, right? Cervical pain. Is that cervical pain coming from pots? From from it's called cold hanger syndrome. Is that coming from that? Is that coming because there is cervical hypermobility? Is there cranial cervical instability? Do we need to rule all that? Do we need neuro? We need um, uh, electrophysiology, cardiology in the game, right? So. Most of the EDS patients will go through a battery of tests and different specialties so we can filter what needs to be followed, what doesn't need to be followed. It's okay. Maybe in a two, three year you go back so we make sure everything is good. And then for the ones that they need to keep follow-ups with, it needs to be, for example, the the greater majority I see at the office is being followed by cardiology, a lot of physiology because of POTS. They do have neuroimmunology or immunologists that is helping with the, the mast cell activation syndrome. Some of them will have pelvic health spe- specialized therapists. Some of them will have a specialist gynecology that understands the complications of pelvic pain. Um, so we have to have them regularly going there for whatever it is that is necessary to help us as physical therapists, uh, we need the support of the medical, the physicians, to maintain that patient medicated correctly so we can do our job better, which is uh, sometimes uh, medication is not the first choice. Sometimes it's like, well, let's just try exercising and see how you get. And sometimes you don't get good results with PT only because the pain is just so beyond what that person can tolerate. So they can't exercise because it's just too much pain. So we need need a primary care physician or anyone that's going to do care coordination. We need a neurologist that could be addressing any sort of neuropathic pain. We might need a spine specialist because there is a scoliosis and that scoliosis is symptomatic. Now we need pain management, right? If they have um, uh, any sort of... uh, neuropathic pain it's when you jump in and you do your magic to help us to be able to work with that patient uh a, a gastro is huge because that patient is not digesting well and that patient is not absorbing well what they are eating there is no building blocks for me to work on if i don't have if my, my my patients don't have enough nutrition there is no muscle nourishment for me to build on so that is another part as well. Sometimes we bring a neuro-orthodontist uh, in the game because there is a such huge correlation of temporomandibular joint and the cranioservical area. So we need to send them there and, and have it cleared. Um, many patients need to be ruled out for craniocervical instability, flexion, extension, and rotation. I have patients that were ruled out completely and then when we did a, a angio 3D scan to their neck, because they were not getting better, their symptoms were so specific. Then back to a specialist, we had a 3D CT scan with the angio pass, and we found out that there was like massive rotations due to the hypermobility of the cervical spine that were compressing jugular vein, they were compressing uh, carotid artery during certain neck movements. And then obviously you're trying to rehab them and you're getting them to move and you're compressing and causing them to pass out in the middle of the PT session even. So it's it's a big team that needs to be involved in this.
1: So if someone is, the US is a large place, the world is a large place. Um, do you have resources that people can look into or how does someone navigate this?
0: So initially, uh, when we do the evaluation, obviously we do provide the patients there in the office oh, I with mean, like, let's the resources. Say in well, no, no, yeah, that that's what I was oh, going okay. to next. Yeah, okay. but for those that are not in Florida, uh, what I do is I, I do I have a Twitter account. I have a a very very active Instagram account. What I pride myself of putting a ton of education in it because it's very important that we educate. Um, I'm just in the process of starting now a, a, a Q&A once a month where people are gonna be able to just hop in and talk to me and ask questions. Uh, we are publishing, we publish blogs regularly. There is a, um, uh, my website is very rich in information as well. Um, my Facebook page is very rich in information as well. Um, I'm in the process of contributing now with other healthcare providers to create materials uh, with uh, the Autonomy International. We're talking about creating uh, education uh, for um, clinicians as well, not only patients, uh, working with uh, Pilates instructors through the Polestar Pilates to educate those instructors. Uh, so they now can work with clients with hypermobility and then specifically education for clients themselves. So they understand their own limitations and what they should modify so they don't get injured. And then obviously, like I said, the Instagram account is rich in the diagnosis aspect of it and what to do and who to look for um, in order to get a little more clarity on this diagnosis that yet needs to be more understood.
1: Great. When, in the show notes, we'll have all of the um, all of your social media accounts you want to share so people can follow you. It's a two-part question. Are there any specific things you want patients to know about Alice Daniel Syndrome that I haven't asked? And, and then if you want to leave a message to clinicians about Alice Daniel Syndrome.
0: So for patients, I, I think the biggest message here is do not give up. Do not, uh, you know, if you haven't found yet your team, Continue to search. There are clinicians. They're more and more interested in learning, and there will be that clinician that might not know a lot, but it's going to be so excited to have you in their caseload and so excited to be able to find resources and help you. So give a chance to all the clinicians in your area as well, um, and and we be my open minded that there is plenty resources out there. The ehlers Society has enough of information. The Ehlers-Danlos organizations in general, if you put ehlers Society, ehlers uh, Um UK, if you look for um, a Disautonomia International, where you're going to actually learn more about POTS, if you look for Mass Activation Syndrome, there are plenty of organizations out there helping uh, you to find resources. So bring that resource to your clinician, find a, and I will, I have a page in my, in my uh, website where I put research papers. If you don't know what to do, what to say to your clinician, just bring that paper. That primary care physician that you love so much might not have the information and understanding, but if you hand them a research paper on the illness, the illness and its complications, that might open a door for them to learn. So they continue moving forward don't give up. At the end of the day, exercise is what is going to get you better, along with proper medication, proper support of all the care teams. So it's a care team. It's not one clinician. It's a team of clinicians that you need to put in your corner. And for the clinicians, uh, I would say there is more and more now out there. There's more research being published. There is more uh, CME courses and CU courses on nailers, 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 giving you all the basics, giving you all the next steps. Uh, We all have the knowledge to put this together. We just need to understand the initial steps and understand that that patient is a systemic patient. So it is not, ehlers and is not, and hypermobility spectrum disorders is not just being double jointed. It takes, it's myofascia and connective tissue exists in the entire body and it involves every single system. So we need to be hyper-aware that every system of the body may be affected and those symptoms are, can be severe and we need to be able to be alert in helping these people.
1: If there's something that you wish people would know about Ellis danlos Syndrome, if you could close with that message, that would be fantastic. So I just want to say thank you so much for taking the time to share your expertise on this platform. And before you share that, I know that people are going to ask, how if someone wants to see you, because clearly you're an expert in this field, how do they find you? And then what insurances do you take?
0: So they will find me, like I said, as the edspt at uh, in, at the Instagram, uh, Dr. Pareto DPT as the um, Twitter account, Actify PT on Facebook. Um, they can also find me at www.actifypt.com on my website. Can call the clinic and the information is going to be available as well. Uh, because of the 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 nature of the EDS, we actually have realized that it's impossible to treat patients under insurance. We do uh, we are out of network, which means that you can submit for reimbursement for your insurance company if you have the benefits. But the way we work, we work an hour one on one with you, and we will provide you with as the lengthy treatment that you need. Not only the traditional 8, 10, 12 visits, they're sometimes released by insurance. Uh, We're also going to be able to uh, provide you with more than just the traditional PT level. So for that reason, we are not in network with the, the majority or with the insurance companies. Uh, but like I said, we are at a network provider. Um, we also work in as a consulting to help you with your local physical therapist so you have your PT that you love and you want to continue working with but they're not as versed in EDS we're happy i am happy to sit down and consult with them help them build your plan of care and then they can carry on and then they can do what they know best which is uh deliver that care to you in person if you're out of state if you're out of the country uh, we have patients outside the country. Uh, we have patients um, in in even outside a town within Florida, which we also provide telehealth services. Then,
1: Banta, Are there any so you do? Are there any limitations to where you can do telehealth?
0: Uh, yes, within the state of Florida, we can do telehealth. Outside the state of Florida, unfortunately, we can do consulting services. We can do education uh, visits to help you understand the system and understand uh, uh, what providers and who you should look for. We also do a lot of recommendations on providers in different parts of the state, or the state, I'm sorry, at the country uh, where you can, We I have connections and I will be happy to connect for those that are, that are in your area. Um, and uh, But yeah, unfortunately, Either If you're out of state, you can travel to Florida. We have an intensive program where you spend two weeks with us and we're going to create a whole plan of care. And then we transition your care as well to your clinician. That's another option. But within the for telehealth itself, it's only within the state of Florida.
1: Perfect. So, again, thank you so much for taking the time for this podcast. Very educational. I learned a lot. And what are your closing thoughts about Alice Download Syndrome?
0: I think Anderson-Luz syndrome uh, or, or specifically the hypermobility spectrum disorders need to be uh, better studied, which we are working, we're all working on that, and needs to be put more attention from the clinical, uh, from the clinician standpoint. Uh, we are all in process of learning, but I think once we get a better understanding and we understand that we need to address this patient as a whole, as a whole person, as a whole system, and not pieces, will be helping a lot more people. Uh, I think there is a great ability to, provide, to to allow this population to have better quality of life, and there are enough resources out there, not only as education resources, but there are different gadgets, different uh, sorts of supports and support groups and um, uh, uh different gadgets in general that we can actually once we understand and learn how we can apply to those patients we're going to be helping a lot so learning put yourself out there learn look for, res- for for resources to give to your patient i think that is that is going to be the most the best we can do to help these people to have a much better quality of life
1: perfect dr brejo thank you so much for the podcast interview
0: Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and visit the Get Healthy 360 Facebook page. We are always looking for feedback and new story ideas. Thanks again, and see you next time.